You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Pauline Muchina about the COVID crisis in Kenya and learn some interesting things comparing how the crisis is handled right now in Kenya versus the United States. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While Radio Free Humanity is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we will begin our conversation about COVID in Kenya. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I are going to talk about some current events. So in this current event section, we are going to be talking about the upcoming U.S. election, which happens in less than two weeks. And in particular, we're going to be talking about the race here on the ground in Pennsylvania, where I live. Pennsylvania is a battleground state, and not only that, it's considered perhaps ground zero for the election. Trump really can't win the election without winning Pennsylvania. It's a state with 20 electoral votes, and it's a very evenly divided state between uh, Democratic and Republican voters. Trump won Pennsylvania only by 44,000 votes in 2016. Uh, There are massive get-out-the-vote operations happening on the ground right now in Philadelphia. Uh, The state has hit a record amount of registered voters overall, 9 million registered voters. And Philadelphia, where I live, has racked up 1.1 million registered voters, which is its highest number since 1984. There is a lot of energy and organization being devoted to voter turnout in Philadelphia right now to defeat Trump. Most of it being led by community organizations that are not affiliated with the Democratic Party at all. And there's so much enthusiasm for voter turnout that the life in Philadelphia is very saturated right now by get-out-the-vote efforts. To give an example, yesterday I went to put up some voter turnout flyers at some bus stops in my neighborhood, and I, it was hard to find a telephone pole or a bus stop that didn't already have voter turnout flyers on it already. Everyone is getting many phone calls a day and many texts a day from different community groups that are, have launched massive phone banking operations. The radio waves and TV waves are completely saturated with election-related advertising. So people are really aware that we are at ground zero for the election, and they're really mobilizing. I mean, Pennsylvania is a must-win state for, for Trump. He, he loses Pennsylvania. There's absolutely no way he can pull, pull this off. I mean, Biden could pull it off without Pennsylvania, but it looks like it's his best shot to nail down the nomination. He's got other ways. If he won Florida, for instance, he wouldn't need Pennsylvania. If he got North Carolina and Arizona, he wouldn't need either Florida or Pennsylvania. And the political divides that you have in Pennsylvania are very much the urban-rural divides that you see in a lot of American states, right? So Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, heavily Democratic. The rural areas of the state are super Trumpy. All over my neighborhood is plastered, get out the vote and Biden signs. And then you drive out into the country and there are Trump signs the size of barns everywhere. Right. And the rural urban split is especially for Philly. It's a kind of a proxy for race. Yes, that's true. Philadelphia is what they call a minority majority city 
whereas a lot of the rural parts of the state are heavily white, although not exclusively. But the Democrats do have the numerical advantage in the state. So this is really going to come down to voter turnout and voter suppression. If the Democrats are, are able to mobilize um, their voting base, um, they can win. If the Re Republicans are able to suppress the vote in different ways, they might win. If they can stop mail ballots from arriving in time by delaying the mail or you know, uh, destroying mailboxes or drop boxes, or if they can disqualify ballots from being counted, or if they can somehow stop the ballot counting process in the first place, they might be able to claim victory. Right. And there, there was a big court case that went to the Supreme Court about mail ballots coming in on time. The highest state court said, okay, as long as the mail-in ballot is postmarked by election day, sent by election day, it counts, and anything that comes in up to three days uh, after the election, as long as, it's, as long as the voter voted in time, that counts. The election officials have to count that vote. And that went to the Supreme Court of the U.S., which has traditionally had a hands-off policy toward how states run their elections, but you had four Supreme Court justices that wanted to hear the case so that they could overturn it, the state decision. Four of them, the three so-called liberals and John Roberts, who, you know, is the, the chief justice, they said no, and because there's still only eight justices to the Supreme Court, that was a 4-4 tie, so the state decision is binding now. But when Amy COVID Barrett gets on the court, uh, which is likely before the end of this month, uh, things could change, although I heard a congresswoman from Reading, Pennsylvania, last night on TV, she says she does not think that Barrett's ascendancy to the court will change this case. This case has been already decided by the Supreme Court. But, uh, you know, it certainly does not look good for the, for the future. Yeah, and we just don't know at this point what kind of tricks and shenanigans the Republicans might pull out to try to stop vote counting or, or to disqualify votes. I think just like in the past four years, many of us have become much more familiar with the machinery of U.S. government in the era of Trump, as we've seen Trump sort of try to erode U.S. institutions. Um, maybe in, around this election, a lot of us are going to become much more um, well-educated about the machinery of voting and voting law state by state. Um, because it is complicated and varies from state to state and from county to county sometimes even. And there might be all sorts of opportunities for, for Republicans to find flaws in that system and exploit it to suppress voter turnout. Right. And it varies from state to state and can vary, you know, from election to election, uh, yeah. depending on the composition of the legislature who's... Uh, in the state courts and uh, who's the governor and so forth yeah. it's it's com it's a complete mess right yeah. uh, i mean i I, I, I would i would i would guess there are not more than 20 people in this country who understand the whole thing well i'm certainly yeah. not one of them yeah the good news from philadelphia is that the city has these new ballot counting machines that can process 16,000 ballots an hour altogether and they will be running these machines like all day until they and all night until they count all the votes and they'll be releasing totals as the process goes on including releasing whatever they have on election night 
You know, but to go to your initial comment about this, are the Republicans going to be able to disqualify mail votes? Are they going to be able to suppress people, keep them from voting at the polls, etc.? The answer to all of these is yes. The question is how much? And we know in like the 2000 election down in Florida, it was extremely tight. And so everything came down to holding up a ballot up, up to the light and looking for a so-called hanging chat. And then it went to the Supreme Court and George W. Bush was elected five to four. There's going to be this stuff, you know, how much they'll be able to get away with, I don't know. But my, my question is, you know, what if the Biden victory is really big in Pennsylvania? I mean, right now it looks like Biden might win by about 6% in, in Pennsylvania, you know, so his margin will be 6%. I expect close to, to 7 million people or so are going to vote, maybe even more. Okay, and that means that Biden will have a margin of about 400,000 votes. So it, it's like... You know, I can definitely see the Republicans manipulating, disqualifying votes and so forth, 30,000, 60,000. Is that going to be enough to make them even close? Um, you know, so it looks like we kind of squeak by on the issue of a few mail-in ballots being counted if they come in late. On the other hand, there's this news came out today that the attempts to manipulate the, the operation of the Postal Service, they put in a big Republican donor who knows nothing about this, uh, head the Postal Service, and he's promised that he, there's not going to be any manipulation, but it looks like it's happening nonetheless. This news came out today, says that an examination of USPS delivery data makes clear that mail delivery in swing states in particular is notably slower than it was earlier this year. In January, 91.7% of mail in the swing states was delivered within one to three days. Now that percentage is down to 83.9%. This was reported in the on the website electoral-vote.com, which is a very good website. So they're getting away with that. I heard last night also that postal police have been basically ordered to stand down, not to leave the, the postal offices to accompany letter carriers on routes that are unsafe or to police the mailboxes, you know, the blue mailboxes to make sure that uh, nobody's ransacking them or carting them away. So they're, they're getting away with a lot of stuff here. But it's interesting. I mean, we'll see how that plays out. Um, I know in Philadelphia that the post office is just prioritizing ballots. You can clearly see that there are ballots. Um, and just anecdotally from people I know who have mailed in their ballots there, they get, you get an email confirmation that you've, that your ballot's been received and they're getting return. They're getting those within like two days of mailing the ballots. Um, so they're, they're getting turned around really quickly in Philly. Um, Philly also has, for the first time ever, regional election offices where you can go to drop off your ballot in person. I went to one a couple weeks ago, um, and a, on a Wednesday morning, there were 80 people in line lining up to just turn in their ballots in person, um, and those are like all over the city, and they're, I mean, I've talked to other people who have gone, and they said, yep, you know, in the middle of the afternoon, there were like 40 people in front of me. Like a lot, they're 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 being heavily used. In other words, um, to because because people don't trust the post office because they've been scared. So people are just driving to these places just to hand their ballot in. Um, and there's also a person at the door who checks to make sure you signed their envelope, which is important. And they have people um, 
volunteers there and who who just sign up for shifts to say, did you put your ballot in the secrecy envelope? Did you sign the back of the envelope? Because these are all the different ways a ballot could be disqualified in Philadelphia. This is all good. This is what you got to do to take it seriously, to overcome the, the, the usual tricks that are used to disqualify ballots. And w- what's playing out in Philly is similar to what's playing out all throughout the country. I mean, the, a lot of the country, you got early voting and people are coming out in droves and they're standing in line, you know, for like hours upon hours. I mean, sometimes people are, are, yeah. are, are waiting in line so much that it's the following morning. It's after, you know, it's after 12. It's already the following morning be, be, before they vote. And, you know, in the news people say, well, this shows the enthusiasm of the Democratic voters. This is not enthusiasm. This is absolute disgust and fear, right? It's fear yeah. over the votes not being counted, but it's, it's fear over a, a Trump uh, second second term. And, um, you know, this is this is just one more expression of the, 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 the implacable resistance to Trump and Trumpism that has emerged, you know, ever, ever since uh, the Women's March the day after he was inaugurated. I mean, people are just like... Not everybody, of course, that's the problem we have, but a lot of people are, like, determined and doing what they can, you know, given the, the, the absence of, of, of anybody who's got social revolution on the agenda, except for a few yeah. of us. I mean, they're doing what they can to try to uh, to, to save the, the liberal democratic system, what's left of it in the United States. I'm, I'm you know, it's, it's very heartening. You don't usually see this, right? I mean, you usually yeah. see, ah, no. you know, they're all, they're all crooks. They're all on the take. Uh, you, you get that kind of, uh, you know, dismissal. And there's a lot to be said for that dismissal. But people know uh, that the future hangs in the balance here. And they're, they're putting their, their bodies on the line, so to speak. They're putting their time into it. Uh, they're standing in line. Uh, the amount of money that people are donating, is, in particular to the Biden campaign, is just, it, it's, it's, you know, through the roof. Well, that's all the time we have for this current event section. Up next, our discussion with Dr. Pauline Muchina about Kenya and COVID. Well, we are very pleased to have Pauline Muchina joining us today on Radio Free Humanity. Pauline, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And regular listeners will, of course, recognize the voice of Angela Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, who is also joining Andrew and I today, and was the one who, who thought of inviting Pauline on the podcast today, and, and is going to lead off our, our conversation today. It's a real pleasure for me to have her on the podcast, because we're old friends. We've known each other about 30 years, I think, since she was a graduate student in New York, getting her PhD from Union Theological Seminary. Pauline will, I'm sure, tell you more about herself, but I'll just say she comes from the Rift Valley province of Kenya, where her family still resides. Currently, she's the policy, education, and advocacy coordinator for Africa at American Friends Service Committee in Washington. Previously, she was the senior partnership advisor for UN AIDS for seven and a half years. She is an expert in AIDS, and now she's 
had to become one in coronavirus. Her latest article that she's written for MHI was written in May, and it's on our website under International News. And there she's asking for people to help send money for women and children who are facing COVID-19 and other disasters, multiple disasters in Kenya. So I'm really anxious to hear about what's happening there and her other work. Thank you, Anne. Uh, Pauline, you've had a lot of experience with uh, HIV, as I mentioned, and also Ebola. And uh, what has your experience and your current observations led you to conclude about the current struggle? And how bad is it right now in East Africa? Thank you so much, Anne. I think, you know, it's easy for us to say that COVID got us by surprise, but it was going on in China and everybody was just thinking, oh, that's a problem over there in Asia. But when it hit, uh, especially in the U.S., I think people can say they were caught by surprise because the leaders were in denial. And so they awareness raising and prevention uh, mechanism, those place here in the U.S. Uh, but I was in Kenya in November, December, January. I came back here in February. And I can tell you that even in December, they were already talking about how they were going to have uh, prevention in place uh, for people to avoid COVID, especially since Kenya is open to a lot of Chinese uh, businesses and, you know, they are coming in and out. And Kenya also is a tourist country. So there are so many people coming from different countries. And by end of January, it was very clear that this was becoming a, a, a global experience, not just in Asia. And when I left Kenya, there was already people's uh, temperatures were being taken at the airport. If you came from a different country into Kenya, especially from Asia and Europe, people were getting their temperatures taken. But when I got here, you know, it was... Uh, with a with a U.S. passport, I was able to just zoom through. Nobody bothered to ask me which countries I had been to or even take my temperature. And I was kind of surprised because on the plane, um, Air Emirates, there were people wearing masks all over. And I was kind of like surprised and thought, oh, I should have worn one. Uh, and then I get to the U.S. and nothing, nothing. It's like, you know, COVID is not happening. Of course, in a few weeks, the, the whole thing changed and our world changed. So what has HIV and Ebola taught us? One of the critical components of health system in Africa is public health and also home care. Both the HIV pandemic uh, and also the Ebola epidemic benefited greatly by having people who are educating others, community leaders, community volunteers who go into communities and educate others about matters to do with health uh, instead of just waiting for health officials to come around to educate. And that has helped a lot. Uh, and especially in West Africa with the Ebola, they rely heavily on uh, volunteers going to, into communities and educating because they did not have enough health workers to be able to do all that work. Today, it's the same thing with COVID, that most of the work is not actually being done by health officials, you know, which they usually do on TV or 
in public settings, but it's being done by community workers who are going into people's homes and educating people and finding, like, for example, I was just reading an article about how Mauritius has kept their deaths to 10 people, 10 deaths, and then to uh, 365 cases in the entire country. And this is a very tourist country. And they've managed to almost go, uh, not unscathed, because even one life lost, is it's a tragedy. But they have been able to do that through home care and using volunteers to go to people's homes to identify people who have symptoms so that they can send them on to the hospital instead of all of them descending to the hospitals, in the hospitals at the same time. It's happening also in West Africa. It happened in some parts of South Africa. It's happening in Kenya. And because of that, the health systems haven't been as overwhelmed as the the World Health Organization was uh, proclaiming that uh, the COVID pandemic will overwhelm the health systems in Africa. For some time, it did overwhelm some of them, like in South Africa, when so many people were dying and over 600,000 people were infected with COVID in South Africa, in Kenya as well. But the numbers are going down now, which is very encouraging. But people, experts are saying maybe it's because they are not testing more and people are trying to figure out how come the cases are so low in some parts of Africa, which whose health system doesn't even function most of the time or is so dysfunctional. But I, I have to admit that in spite of all the challenges we have with our African leaders, some of them really did very well on, on COVID. You know, they instituted early restrictions, whether it was travel from big cities to the rural areas, whether it was incoming flights uh, from Asia and from Europe. And, you know, increasingly, they were able to prevent the spread of COVID to be community spread. It actually became contained in big cities for a while and until just recently when it started going into the rural areas as well. This is Andrew Kleiman. I have a follow-up question. Some of the, the COVID statistics was in terms of number of cases, as you say, that can be influenced by testing. But the only thing that can influence death rate statistics and, and distort them is either lack of reporting when people die or misdiagnosis, perhaps, or, or government suppression. And looking at the numbers, I mean, it's astounding to me how low the death rate is in Kenya compared to the United States. In the United States, the death rate is 50 times that of Kenya. Uh, And that's not because it's a bigger country, that's the death per million people, right? So in in Kenya, it's like 11 deaths per million. In the United States, it's, it's 587 deaths per million. So, but I'm a bit skeptical about reporting issues. What, what is your view of this? I mean, how, how well can we trust the numbers that we're seeing in terms of the death rate? There are some countries that actually were not reporting their death rates, you know, and, and even some did downplay the numbers of people who are dying. I know some was lack of capacity for reporting. For example, when it started happening in Somalia, the government didn't even know what was happening in rural areas, especially. And, you know, the Somalians are very mobile. And so there were people dying without reporting. In Kenya, of course, yes, there are people who are dying with 
without reporting. But uh, majority of the cases, you know, according to health experts, are being reported. According to the communities as well, there hasn't been like high numbers of unexplained deaths because then you would know like here there's in the, in this country they are saying that among people of color there has been an, a hike of deaths to the tune of 210,000 which is unexplained so the only other thing that you can associate it with is covid so maybe more people have died here than the 190 something thousands that we're hearing. But with Kenya, yes, the testing is very low. And yes, you know, there were cases that nobody uh, knew what people had died of. But fortunately, the government is testing even people when they die at home, they get tested because the, the government is trying to control the, the cases. So they want to know what killed this person. If it is COVID, what's happening to the rest of the people who came into contact with this person? So that's why they've been testing people after they, they die. Uh, and we've had cases of people who are dying waiting to be seen in the hospitals or waiting for their test results. So all of that is, uh, uh, you know, stories that we are hearing. You know, I'm usually very skeptical of government's self-reporting. So I can I can safely say that I I don't know whether the the reports that we are getting from the government are accurate because we don't know their motivation. So sometimes they could be under-reporting the cases, but then we would had more you know outcry in the communities as we are hearing them in from like Tanzania like Burundi, where we are hearing stories of communities just saying we are barring people and we don't know what is killing them. Uh, in Kenya, yes, but once the government knows that uh, somebody has died and died at home, they test them to find out whether they actually had COVID. And then I'm talking to my nephew and my, my nephew says, you know, a few weeks ago, I lost my sense of smell and I, I had a sore throat. And then after a few days, you know, I took lemon and I took ginger and, 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 and aspirin and I started feeling better. And then there's so many stories of Kenyans telling stories like that, that, you know, I started losing uh, my sense of smell. I started feeling achy. I had a sore throat. I took lemon. And so you don't want to say that there's a cure because we don't know. But, you know, it's true. The African population, especially the Kenyan population, is quite young. And scientists have been saying that the young, the younger generation are experiencing COVID differently from older generation. So that's a possibility. But I think there are other factors that we don't know yet. Uh, COVID is very new, and it, I think it would be negligent for us to just use the, the data that we have now or the experiences that people are, uh, are sharing now to give a full report of what COVID has done in the continent or in Kenya. I, I think it will take some time for that full report to come out. You know, in, in Kenya, yes, there's not enough testing. But if you show up in an emergency room in Kenya, if they admit you, they will give you a COVID test. 
Here, I ended up uh, at um, Innova Hospital, Alexandria, on Friday and Saturday, and I asked for the COVID test five times, and they told me that I didn't fit the category of the people who are getting tested for COVID. I was there for, you know, from Friday afternoon to Saturday evening, and I had chest pains. Thank God it turned out to be nothing but they did not give me a COVID test. And when I asked, they say that the, the, the president, President Trump, you know, and CDC have reversed the guidelines and they don't have to test the symptomatic people. And the nurses there, you know, were kind of worried. And I was worried too, because I ended up in the ward. And if I wasn't tested, imagine all the other patients weren't tested. So we were all there at the mercy of who. And then the nurses themselves are exposed. And then you get there and you are sent back home. And that's when you, if, if you have COVID, you start getting sick when you get back home. Uh, and if they had tested you, they would have helped you to, to begin managing it. So there's a difference of care that, in my opinion, in this country, because of politics, I think politics has played a bigger role in this country than it has in other countries. And Perhaps because other illnesses like HIV and malaria and Ebola have always been in the public sphere that when COVID came, there wasn't that much political wind in it. I'm not saying that in Kenya, people are doing exactly what they are told. They are not. I was talking to my sister um, yesterday and she told me that now she's seeing, since they started reporting less than 100 cases each, each day in Kenya, people are now going out without masks. People are now not afraid of using public transportation, you know, but the schools in Kenya are still closed and they will be closed until January 2021. So there's a huge difference. Perhaps our, our, our agency to have those uh, strict uh, prevention strategies were because we have limited uh, health infrastructure and we don't have all the resources that people here have, like, you know, sanitizers, regular water that you can ha wash your hands anytime you want. Uh, you can isolate yourself in a private room. That's not a luxury that most African, uh, Kenyan, Kenyan actually, actually the, whole, the whole continent, but especially my home country of Kenya, you know, like where my mom lives. You know, my mom is the only one who has her, her private room. Everybody else shares a room. There is one sitting room. There is one kitchen. So if someone is sick there, they, they cannot easily isolate themselves. You know, so social distancing is not something that a lot of African countries, including uh, Kenya, can easily do. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on your first remark, which I found amazing and wonderful, and particularly in light of what you just said about the difficulties they face. But you said most of the work is being done by community people, uh, not by health professionals but by local people who people trust, I assume, being trained in, in what to do, and then go, do they go house to house and advise people, uh, or what do they do, and, and what do they do about the fact that people, poor people can't be self-isolating or they may not have enough water? How do they handle that? 
if someone is symptomatic and they don't have space to isolate, then they are taken to the clinics or the government also established isolation or quarantine spaces. Some of them were boarding schools because all the kids were home. Some of them were colleges and you'd be sent there to quarantine for the duration of the illness. But most of the people who are symptomatic end up in hospitals. If you are asymptomatic and you don't have somewhere to quarantine and you are positive, then you can go to uh, isolation centers. And that's what caused a lot of problems also in Kenya because people were forced to isolation or to quarantine. Uh, if they didn't quarantine themselves, they were arrested and, and taken to detention. Well, not detention, but quarantine centers managed by the government. And some people broke out. In fact, some of the early cases of the spread going into rural areas were people who were running from quarantine areas and running to their friends or their homes while they knew that they were positive. So that was a really uh, unfortunate occurrence. But those are a few people, not, not a very common phenomenon. But the, the major problem in Kenya actually has been that when the government started locking down some of the uh, cities and public transportation, they should have also provided food for people, especially in places like Madare Valley, Karyobanki, you know, like in places where it's so congested and people are very poor, you know, those are the informal settlements in Kenya. You know, people call, some people call them slums, but we call them informal settlements. And you find out that if they were given food, if they were given, uh, if they were still able to pay rent to their, the people who owned their little shacks, and if they had access to basic health services within their communities, then they, they managed to isolate even in such difficult situations. And uh, AFSC, American Friends Service Committee, which is the organization for whom I work, actually was taking food to people in Madari so that they don't have to worry about going out looking for food and getting exposed to COVID. Also remember that since it was not a local outbreak, most of it came from outside and especially with people who travel a lot and tourists. Once the government started controlling people coming into the country and making sure they are isolating and that kind of helped. And, and then the informal settlements only got the COVID recently, you know, when the, when the government opened up the country again and people started going in and out of different places, going to work in places where people travel. Of course, the hotel industries in Kenya is almost dead because there are no tourists who are who are coming into Kenya in large numbers. And so some of the hotels are closing down, like Intercontinental Hotel uh, in Nairobi has said that they are going to shut down for good. Norfolk Hotel, you know, all those tourist hotels that don't have tourists anymore unless something happens very quickly for them to start getting tourists then that industry is going down or has already gone down. So it's a question of how are they going to revive it? And a lot of uh, people worked in that industry. And this is the other thing that's not being talked about. The economic uh, downturn caused by COVID is going to be worse than the disease itself. Kenya 
We've lost almost 500 people, you know, but the economic crisis may cause more deaths than COVID itself because people are going to starve if um, they don't get any help. People are going to, children are going to be malnourished and they, they are going to get diseases that come with malnourishment and they end up, they end up dying before the age of five. Pregnant women are, are at risk as well. And elderly people uh, who are actually mostly isolating because they've been warned again and again. And the government of Kenya had a program to help elderly people to social distance by providing food. But it ended up being so corrupt that even some of the members of parliament were getting it. And they don't need it. They're getting hefty salaries. They don't need that little resources that was designated for poor elderly people in Kenya. <sighs> I don't know what to say, but if they had, if, if the Kenyan government had done what they're supposed to do, they could have actually managed to protect the citizens completely from ever coming into contact with COVID because it did not originate locally, but they failed to provide, for example, food. They failed to provide protection from being evicted from apartments, and they failed to provide elderly people with, you know, uh, food and medication when they, they, they really needed it. Pauline, earlier you were contrasting the situation in the U.S. with COVID with what's going on in Kenya and Africa. And I have a specific question about that. You know, here in the States, there's a lot of problem with disinformation and misinformation and the politicization of information uh, around COVID, difficulty getting consistent public health messages out to the American public and having people agree on the basic facts uh, and science behind COVID and, and safety protocols. Um, what is the state of like shared notions of truth versus disinformation in Kenya and Africa more broadly? And then also, you know, one of the anticipated problems in the U.S. is when a vaccine eventually might get released, there's, we have to worry about vaccine skepticism, both by sort of the anti-vaxxer community, but also people that might not trust any vaccine that's rolled out under Trump. Um, is, is there a, a sort of a, some equivalent vaccine skepticism in Kenya or Africa more generally that, that one should be worried about? So misinformation, when it all started, a lot of people were saying, oh, this is a Chinese disease. Just like Trump was saying here, some of the Kenyan individuals were saying that. But the Kenyan government right from the beginning was saying this is serious. Uh, government officials, the Ministry of Health, uh, the Ministry of Education, they all started modeling in terms of wearing masks and really talking to people, telling them that this is going to have devastating effect. And I think that helped a great deal. There was no denial because of the other epidemic. People have learned to accept that there are times when they need to actually listen to what health officials are saying. So like, for, for example, 
example, when there is a malaria outbreak, you know, when there is an outbreak of some kind, the health officials who will say this is happening, you know, and cholera is a common occurrence in Kenya. And we are used to being told there's a cholera outbreak in this region. Everybody take precautions. So it wasn't something that people are not used to hearing. They're used to hearing that. But it helped a great deal that the president of Kenya, the deputy president, the members of parliament, everybody was saying this is terrible. This is going to happen if we don't take precaution. Of course, there were a few people even in, in parliament who did not think this to be serious and they ended up getting sick because they are exposed to travel or to tra uh, travelers, other travelers in their families. I think the more people saw people getting sick, the more people became even more concerned. But up to this time, you know, just last week, two prominent politicians who were kind of laughing it off got it. <laughs> so it's really a combination of the work that has already been in place in education and also the government that did not use denial from the beginning. They went into action immediately. And it wasn't just Kenya, it was uh, Uganda. Uganda and Rwanda did excellent work doing prevention. Up to this time, I think they, they still have very low cases. We were late in stopping Ethiopian Airlines from bringing tourists into Kenya. And that's what happened that, you know, we ended up with more cases than some of the countries in the region. When it comes to the vaccine, like, let me say that I did not hear any uh, famous or prominent health officials downplaying this. They said right from the beginning, this is coming. Be careful. We don't have treatment for this, please uh, use masks, you know, wash your hands if you can. And they even actually started, the business community was very helpful. They started um, making sanitizers and distributing it to people for free and people started using it. But when it comes to a vaccine, of course, there is always people who will not accept a vaccine. But majority, predominantly people in Kenya have already vaccinated their children. That's how we are able to overcome some of the things like uh, polio, missiles, and you know all these communicable diseases that can be prevented from vaccination. As a child, you have to go through all these vaccinations. So it's not a long stretch to ask people to be vaccinated. If there was a vaccination for HIV, I think all Kenyans would take it. You know, so the only thing is there is a lot of suspicion if it is coming from outside. There has been a conversation about, okay, so why do they want to use us as guinea pigs? Why can they test it in their own home? They have more cases than we do. Why are they not doing it there? They want to come and test it here. So that there has been that. And I agree with that as well. You know, if you're going to test, uh, you know, test it in a country where there's more cases than where there isn't uh, or where there is low cases, then we don't want to be used as guinea pigs. And then also remember that Kenya has very high level medical uh, experts and medical um, institutions that are also test testing their own vaccines and also their own drugs, uh, treatment for COVID. And Kenyans are used to that because they've been doing this for years with HIV and malaria and other diseases that they, they've been controlling. So I don't think it will be difficult to get Kenyans to take a, a vaccine 
if it becomes available. The problem in the U.S. is that the top leaders, some of them, like Trump, they are leading in mis- misinformation. Just today I read he knew how serious this pandemic was, but he was downplaying it. If that's true, that's criminal. How many people have lost their lives? It's over 190,000 people that have lost their lives because somebody in leadership like him was downplaying the pandemic and therefore did not have in place the prevention strategies that they needed. Even when it came to um, the distribution of PPEs, you know, how those were being distributed. And for a country like the U.S. not to have enough PPEs is is very concerning. And I, I thought that in Kenya that would be normal because, you know, we are always lacking. And But our government, well, actually I shouldn't say government, but private companies jumped in very quickly and started producing uh, local PPEs and masks. And people also are very creative. They started making their own. Like all the kids in our programs, my family members, they are all using homemade uh, masks uh, when they go out. And if we had waited for the government to distribute them or for them to be available in the shops for us to buy, we wouldn't have been able to access them. So uh, I think it depends on people's mindset. And it's very unfortunate that so many Americans have died because of misinformation. I want to come back to this cooperative spirit that you've described among the Kenyans. I think that's a factor also, since we have a large section of the U.S. who are followers of Trump who think it's perfectly all right for them to not wear masks and kill other people that way because they just don't care. So I wonder if you would talk a little bit about your experiences. I don't know if you want to go back. I don't know how involved you were in the mass movements against the Moy dictatorship. You were very young, but if some of that history comes in to it and certainly the cooperatives that you have founded and worked in for African women and and children. If you want to talk about any of that at at this point and how that's a part and parcel of an attempt to control disease and to improve life for ordinary people. I want to begin by saying that Unlike the U.S., in Kenya, we have very, very few nursing homes. You saw the devastation that took place in nursing homes in this country. That didn't happen in Kenya or in African countries because we don't have nursing homes. Elderly people are still embedded in their communities and in their families. And for me, I really pray that we never miss lose that. Uh, my mom is in her 90s and she is embedded in her family, you know, there's about nine people who live with her and uh, they're all taking care of her and and other families too, not just my family. One of the saving grace for us in Africa is not to have nursing homes. I know that families are challenged when they have a loved one that they have to take care of and 
they have to work at the same time. But there's always it's always possible to get a few resources to you know have at least a family member or a relative take care of the person. And that saved us. That also really was very helpful. So when I think of how Africans or um, Kenyans have been able to help each other, I, I see the family unit as very important. I see it not only as the biological families, because like in my family, we were raised with so many other children who are not my parents' blood children. And my parents were raising them alongside us. So because they, they either came from very poor families or their parents had died and they needed somewhere to, to live and go to school and get food. And so my parents took them in. And that spirit has continued uh, and it continues in so many families and communities around Africa because we have very weak social services. Uh, you know, there are no soup kitchens, there are no food banks. Uh, so it's you are either helped by your relatives and the community or you are left to die. So when I look at Africa and I look at my own uh, community, I really hope that those are the kind of spirit that we never lose, that they, people will always feel the inspiration to take care of each other and to feed each other, to shelter each other. Um, and in my community, we say that there are no orphans because every orphan has someone who can take them in. I ended up doing that with the kids that are in our program, in our Future African Leaders Project where we feed them, we pay school fees for them, and some of them we pay for shelter. And some of them are HIV positive, so we also provide medical services to them so that they are able to access health services. Um, and although ARVs are, are free in Kenya, other medication is not free, so we have to buy the medication as well because most of the once living with HIV, it's not HIV that's a problem. It is opportunistic diseases like malaria, TB, and others that will trouble them. So we have to keep on top of that, providing food for them, medication, making sure that they are living in a safe environment, especially for young girls. Uh, violence against women and girls is very high in Kenya. So we have to make sure that they are also safe. We also have women and young men and women who are also participating in our African Women and Youth Initiative, which is a program that, you know, supports them to make handmade products like handbags, earrings, uh, necklaces, and jackets, which we sell in the United States. And we also, we sell on Etsy. If you just Google African Women and Youth Initiative, you'll find our shop on Etsy. And all the proceeds go back. We have a scholarship fund for the kids in the community and also all the people participating in the program also out of their own initiative. We, you know, it's not handouts, but it is them using their hands and minds and bodies to produce. Then we sell them here. They are quite fashionable. I'm sure, Anne, you've seen some of them. Seen some in person and gotten some in person. Everyone should, should go and look at your page on Etsy because 
They are just stunning. Even just in photographs, they are stunning. I just think we, we should clarify that when you say we, you're talking about your family and neighbors who started these groups and you started taking in orphans because of the, of the AIDS epidemic. There were a lot of orphans in your community. So that was like a massive effort at self-help and then that developed into these um, sewing cooperative and other things. The business actually started with my sister because I would go home and when I'm coming back, my sister would give me, you know, these things that she's made by hand and say, oh, go share it with your friends. And I would come and I would share them with my friends and my friends would say, why, why did you buy this? And I said, my sister made it. And so when I saw how much interest people had, I thought, you know, my sister can make this and she can teach other people in the community to do it. And perhaps I can sell them for them and they can get a little bit of money. And I don't have to always be the one giving until sometimes I don't have my own rent. (laughs) That's how it started. When I requested my sister to do it, she said yes. So every mother who was in the program, her kids were receiving school fees and or they were receiving food. I say to them, if you want to change your life so that it's not just me giving you money, but actually you earning money, do you want to learn? And so they started learning from my sister. And that's how we started. I remember the first time that they were able to donate $250 to the scholarship fund and they were crying. You know, they were like, I never thought they were saying, I never thought I can ever help someone else because I always needed help. But with this, I can help someone else. And so it became very uh, empowering. In in addition to having a global economic system that's so unjust is the debt crisis uh, in Africa, but also elsewhere in the world. And a lot of countries are uh, highly indebted and they will never be able to come out of their debt. So we've been working through my organization, but also personally as, as a human rights activist, I've been advocating for debt cancellation for poor countries. We are at a point where... They will not be able to repay debt and take care of their people, especially during this economic downturn. So we are calling for debt cancellation for for low and middle income countries. And it is possible to forgive their debts without anybody feeling the the weight of that debt. So we call on IMF, the World Bank, the European Union, the United States uh, to go ahead and cancel debt for those uh, middle and low income countries. But the other thing that we are really asking for is there is some reserves that can help these countries weather the COVID pandemic um, economic crisis. And that is the special drawing rights at IMF. We are advocating for the U.S. government because they have veto power and they can object to it at IMF. So we are advocating that they don't use their veto power to block the issuance of uh, special drawing rights. Because, for example, those special drawing rights would mean that Kenya gets $3 billion to revive the economy in the country. And it needs reviving because everything came to a standstill, just like here. You know, the U.S. doesn't need it, but we need it. China doesn't need it, but we definitely need it. South Africa needs it. And South Africa qualifies for about $16 billion. 
In just a moment, we will continue our interview with Dr. Pauline Mucina. But first, a few words from Anne about Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors our podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. As usual, we had to do a little bit of editing of this episode for time constraints, but we're going to jump to the end of our discussion with Pauline, where she talks about some of the ecological and political obstacles confronting Kenyans today. So COVID, locusts and flooding. Locusts did come and they devastated northeastern parts of Kenya. The harvest is very low because of locusts. And, you know, they eat everything on their way and they did do that. There was such a big effort to try and kill them, and they managed to actually prevent it from spreading all over Kenya, and it was concentrated mainly in northeastern Kenya. It came through the Rift Valley and actually came through about a mile from my mom's house, and they passed. Uh, Oh, my God. But they are breeding again uh, in the Mediterranean. So the danger is there for them to come again and 
and this time we don't know which way they will take. We know they've gone up to Ethiopia, they went to Sudan. Communities there, of course, they, they are not going to have the regular harvest that they do because of that. The other thing is the flooding. The flooding, because of climate change, things have really changed in Kenya. You know, for example, right now in Nairobi, it's freezing. And this is September. It's supposed to be warm. It starts getting warm in August and it will go on until January and February before it starts raining again in March. But it's still raining and it is freezing cold. So and then in some places, all the other lakes in Kenya, each one of them has flooded. So everybody knows that this is a consequence of climate change. I'm feeding people in Kisumu. There's an organization there called Spring Ministries, and I send them $100 every every month because she has women from that community that has been displaced, you know, and then she has orphans that she takes care of and widows. And so some of them are leaving along the road because the roads were the only place that were high enough for water not to flood. So can you imagine, you know, living on on roads? But flooding is still a problem in Kenya and it's also a problem right now in in Sudan. I don't know whether you've seen it in the news. Uh, They're reporting that flooding is threatening the pyramids in uh, in Sudan. So it's, it's quite a challenge even, as I said, the economic crisis coming because of COVID is going to have also a devastating impact. And the communities that are already affected by locusts, flooding, and then COVID uh, economic crisis are not faring very well. So we need to keep them in our minds and see how they can get the help that they need. Of course, ethnic rivalry in Kenya has always been a challenge. And even now, as we head into the 2022 elections, all the tension that sends us to election violence every five years are already, like the red flags are already up. We managed not to have much violence in the last election because the two largest ethnic groups, um, the president, who is Kikuyu, and Ruto, who is his deputy, Ruto, who is a Kalenjin, came together and they were able to unite uh, the communities and they avoided large-scale violence. But the tension is always there. And now the president and the deputy president aren't doing very well. The president formed alliances with Raila, who is the opposition leader, who is always losing elections. And, you know, he he's now an ally of the current president and tensions have really risen to very high now. Uh, so we don't know what's going to happen. But the ethnic rivalry is just not about, you know, elections. It's about land reforms. Some of the remnants of colonial legacy in Kenya was appropriating people's lands. A lot of families and communities were left without lands. The Kikuyus in central Kenya, where I come from, my grandma, my grandfather, my grandmother, my parents, you know, they were all displaced by the colonial settlers. Uh, they took all their lands, they took all their cows, all their ships, and 
they had to move into the Rift Valley to look for somewhere to live uh, and to survive. Those who were left in central Kenya were put into camps, and that's how the Mau Mau War came into being in Kenya. So there's a long legacy of, you know, lack of land reforms, because after the colonialists left, they left in name and sometimes even in person, but they still own the vast fertile land in Kenya, either by proxy or by themselves. So either through multinational corporations or through some of the politicians or the families of those uh, white settlers still own thousands and thousands of acres where they grow coffee for export, tea for export. They, they raise cows for dairy products, export to Europe and things like that. Most of the people in Kenya don't own land, especially people who live in the cities. And some of them have been displaced by politically instigated ethnic violence that has left them landless. So there's always that tension, people wanting to fight for their own land. The challenge in saying that the Kikuyus came into our, our region and took over our lands and the Kikuyu saying, but we paid for it, so it's our land. And the government doing very little to do any land reforms uh, in the whole country. And therefore, um, if you have money in Kenya, you can buy thousands and thousands of acres of land. And uh, also multinational corporations own a lot of land in Kenya. I want to thank Pauline for her time and her contribution. And I also want to note that she is quite a noted leader in the world of women theologians, that she received the United Methodist Church Global Leadership Award in 2011, and in 2014, the Huffington Post honored her as one of the 50 most powerful women international religious leaders. Thank you, Anne. I deeply appreciate that. Yeah, this has been great. Uh, this, I think our listeners will learn a lot from this podcast, so we <clears throat> very much appreciate all your insights and knowledge. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you'd like the podcast, please stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to hear more episodes or to read about similar issues. If you'd like the podcast, you can subscribe, you can donate, you can put it in your RSS feed, and you can tell your friends and enemies. But most of all, we'd love to hear from you. So please do write us and tell us what you think. <laughs>